Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. So did you read the news about how Enbridge used Senator Mike Duffy as a go-between to lobby Stephen Harper? None of this was registered. It was likely illegal. And the point may have, in fact, been to reach the PM without leaving a paper trail. But all the while, Duffy was keeping a diary of everyone he spoke to, when he spoke to them, and about what. He then redacted the hot parts of this diary with a sharpie. But the reporter who broke this story, Michaelo Prestupa, was able to decipher it all by magnifying the text and then distinguishing between the two different kinds of black ink. This was a hell of a story. I think it was the Mike Duffy story we've been waiting for. And if you read it, you read it in the National Observer, which launched just last week. While the rest of the media was parsing yet another day of Duffy trial revelations about makeup expenses, the National Observer was launching with a bang. So what is the National Observer? It is the new national offshoot of the Vancouver Observer, an independent news site that's been around since 2006. People behind it raised over 80000 bucks on Kickstarter to become a national news presence. 
Its founder and publisher, Linda Solomon Wood, spoke to me recently about it all, and she'll be on the show in a minute to talk about it. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Lindy Goodman, Bob Gibson, Samantha Hodder, Tej, Lauren Beaton, Tyler Shandro, Nick and Megan Lan, Derek Smith, Amon, Colin O'Neill, and Jeff Cummings. Jeff, why did you decide to be awesome? Because uh, we don't really keep uh, media accountable. In Canada, there's not, not many organizations uh, in Canada or, or outfits in Canada that keeps media in check. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is also brought to you by CampTech. CampTech provides workshops for grown-ups who want to learn how to do computers better. These are half-day to full-day digital skill workshops where you learn practical stuff you can use about things like Google Analytics or online retail or Photoshop. Look, these days there are a lot of ways you can learn about this stuff. There are corporate training seminars. There's night school at technical college. There are free instructional YouTube videos. So I asked CampTech's founder, Avery Swartz, why her students choose to learn at CampTech workshops instead. People learn in different ways. So there are all kinds of online, totally free online modules, some really great learn to code and learn how to do this stuff. You can also learn from a book if that's your learning style. But if you want classroom style learning, there's really nowhere else to go. CamTech workshops are offered in Toronto, Ottawa, Kitchener-Waterloo, and soon Vancouver. They start at just 85 bucks. For more info, go to camptech.ca. Linda, what are you guys going up against? I mean, you're trying to uh, cover with the National Observer the energy industry and the environment from the public's point of view. What 
is the current story being told by the energy industry itself? And I'm wondering if here you can kind of give us a sense of the scope of their media influence, the scope of the spend, uh, how much resource they put into media and where it all goes. It's hard to know how much money the energy industry really puts into to media buys in Canada, but it's clearly very large. Um, we know that the Canadian government alone over a couple of years spent something close to $23 million to promote the Canadian oil sands abroad and in the U.S. And we know that if the Canadian government is spending on that level, that the huge multinational corporations that are in Canada to develop and expand the oil sands are spending even more. And it was very apparent as Enbridge tried to get the Northern Gateway Pipeline through British Columbia, we were saturated, saturated by ads on uh, radio, you know, online, videos, every newspaper and magazine, pretty much everywhere you looked, it was like psychic saturation. We started to see journalists get in trouble over reporting about critical reporting of the energy industry. Just the, the example that jumps to my mind is Dan Murphy, who was writing, who was a cartoonist for 25 years or so for uh, the province of post-media-owned publication, and he did a video that mocked Enbridge's advertising, one of Enbridge's ads. They ordered him to take the video down. He said that he was told, we have a million dollars of advertising at stake with Enbridge. And, you know, we, we, I don't know beyond that how the conversation went, but those kinds of things, you know, they're disturbing they uh, are inspiring to me in terms of how incredibly open the field is for critical reporting of the energy industry. And by critical, I just mean, you know, reporting that really uh, poses tough questions and doesn't just reflect the PR strategies of the energy companies. I guess it's something that you could try to map a number of different ways. I mean, you could try to look at it just in terms of ad spending alone, and of course those numbers are not readily available, but that's not the only thing we're talking about here. I mean, Canada Land sort of stumbled into this topic when we uh, reported on Rex Murphy um, getting paid outlandish sums of money to speak for the oil industry and then opining about that on the CBC when we found out that, that Peter Mansbridge was being paid by the oil industry, one of the biggest topics in the country that he would then go moderate discussions about, and he was getting tens of thousands of dollars from them. Uh, so you've got like those direct spends that go into some of the most influential journalists journalists um, in the country's pockets. And then you've got, uh, outside of the ads, again, things like uh, charitable donations that Enbridge has made to the Walrus Foundation. In addition to their ads that they bought there, you got things like this kind of crazy presentation that was exposed that Douglas Kelly, the, uh, the publisher at the time of the National Post, gave to the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, where he pitched them on this whole 
elaborate, very involved partnership that went beyond ads that was about native content. But really, he said he was going to put the full editorial powers of the Post and I think Post Media behind the interests of the oil industry. It seemed almost like an ideological union as much as a, as a business relationship. Uh, I mean, it goes on and on. I mean, uh, it goes into indie media. Ezra Levant's got the rebel and there are ties to the oil industry uh, in the management uh, of that. Starting back with the cap president, with the uh yeah, the Prezi that surfaced last year it basically was a presentation that Post Media was making to the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers. And it was revelatory because it wasn't, I can't say it was shocking. It was kind of like reflected what, you know, seemed to be happening, um, which was just a very close relationship. And almost an offer of, hey, you know, we're partners in the editorial. Yeah. And people should really go and look at that presentation themselves, that they're interesting. And what, what's really phenomenal to me is it's still online. And I think that what that says is, despite the fact that it came out, you know, we, we reported on it and we said, I think actually we were the only people to report on it or the first people to report on it. We said, it suggested an intimate relationship. The environment that we're in now where you can understand where they're coming from, you know, that there's just such a uh, loss of revenue going on for media companies across Canada. And I I sympathize with with them. I sympathize with the, the need to bring in a lot of revenue to, you know, manage a lot of overhead and a lot of expensive journalism but where it gets dicey is just your your question is did it are they buying influence really i think is what you're asking are they buying influence or are they buying editorial or are they trying to suppress voices and i think we've seen all of that yeah, I guess, you know, like the post-media partnership isn't going to surprise a lot of people. Uh, I guess that's like a duh uh, when you consider the politics of the paper itself. But, I mean, the extent of it is, I think, a new frontier when you when you have like this. this uh, I, I saw a post-media tablet app that had an energy section, which I believe is a, was an, a, a, they bought a section of this digital newspaper uh, that was all native uh, content. There have been unmarked advertorials uh, that have been oil industry sponsored. But again, this is that's post-media. There's some more surprising stuff like Canadian Geographic Magazine. Magazine. I mean, you think of it as like Canada's National Geographic. You think of it as probably being environmentalists or pro-environment. And there's actually a partnership between CAP and Canadian Geographic to to develop uh, energy IQ, like a school curriculum for kids uh, that is aligned with the interests of, of the oil industry. I, I mentioned the walrus, which I think a lot of people uh, don't have the same feelings as they do towards Post Media, the National Post, when term, in, in terms of them having a pro-oil or pro-business bent. But they, as I said, have both advertising and uh, charitable donations from Bridge. And then just looking at like the straight ad buys that touches sites like iPolitics. So, you know, independent online media uh, also becomes increasingly dependent on this money. I mean, Linda, you and I speaking as uh, fellow entrepreneurs in the digital media space, wouldn't our lives be so much easier? Wouldn't it be just better for us uh, as, as business people if our editorial content was aligned or at least sympathetic to the interests of the energy industry? Oh, yeah. I guess it would be a pretty easy road. You know, that, well, for me as a journalist, that really just doesn't, uh, doesn't jibe with my values at all, you know, because I think that, you know, my job as a journalist is really to question 
you know, to pose questions and to be critical. And really, you know, who do I work for? Ultimately, I feel like I work for, you know, the audience. I feel like I work for, you know, people, not big corporations. Yes, it's a huge opportunity because here we are in a country with, you know, it's been described as ground zero of climate change. And we have a media that is obsequious to this sector and that largely because of the advertising dollars it bestows on them. And, you know, a mainstream media that's really failing Canadians in regards to taking a critical eye to the energy industry. And so that opens up an enormous opportunity for creating a different kind of publication. And I like to think of what we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do with the National Observer is to create an energy and environment desk for Canada that recognizes the urgency of climate change. And we've seen that beat, like that desk disappear from other media organizations. Uh, I think the Globe and Mail used to have an environmental reporter. They did. But, you know, and I think that they would say I've had these conversations with people inside the Globe and Mail who are like, we, we do a lot of environmental reporting. Come on. You know, and they do. But we've all, you know, I've also had conversations with people inside of Post Media, inside of CBC, who are like, oh, my God, OK, just take my contacts, take my notes. I'm never going to be able to do this story, say, on LNG. You know, so you guys go here it is. Please do it. This just isn't going to happen. What is LNG? Liquefied natural gas. So, you know, one of the that's uh, Christy Clark in British Columbia has that's her one of her biggest uh, goals is to rapidly expand the exploration. Fracking. Sorry. (laughs) Commonly known as fracking. Fracking. Okay. (laughs) Linda, how are you able to do this? Um, This is a question that I ask big media companies. It's a question that I ask small upstarts. How are you financing this journalism? How are you financing this expansion to the national stage? Uh, In addition to the uh, crowdfunding efforts that you've done on Kickstarter, I don't imagine that that's paying for everything that you're doing right now. The Vancouver Observer, I've bootstrapped the Vancouver Observer through the first years. But as I became more serious about it, I was able to bring in small investment, build with that, hire journalists right out of journalism school. Then we started winning some awards. Then, you know, I just got more and more serious about it. And as I did, I started to look for other ways to fund it. I started to realize that money wasn't just going to come like I thought when I started it, that it was like if we did good content, you know, advertising, we'd have advertising. Advertisers would come to us, and that just turned out to be not what happened at all. We have been successful with advertising. Last year, half our income did come from advertising. Um, But I started to also, you know, basically go to philanthropists and ask them to fund us because, you know, of the real need in Canadian media for this kind of reporting. And I've been really persistent about it, and I've been, you know, successful enough with it, you know, to begin to think about taking this whole thing national. Um, And to be clear, we're not really, we're not taking the Vancouver Observer National. We're starting a whole new publication called the National Observer. And people got really excited about that uh, because the National Observer's mission is to focus deep, down into the story of energy and the environment in Canada. You know, when we have the opportunity, when I have the opportunity, I really want to drive down into a subject. And so that's what we're going to do. 
Do you find that tricky? I mean, when you're talking about uh, donors, philanthropists, uh, I think that it's safe to say that they have agendas, and and that might just be ideological agendas that they they think that somebody like you should be in the mix, having a voice, or they may have business interests that align with uh, challenging the oil industry. How do you deal with that? Do you disclose where the money comes from, and and do you feel beholden to these donors in any way? It has challenges that have to be navigated in terms of who the money's coming from and what is the deal with the money. And in my case, my deal with people is you have absolutely no editorial input. We sign an agreement to that effect. It is new territory for sure. We're not in the old days of journalism anymore. And if anybody has a better idea please come talk to me. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> Look, you know, no question. I mean, I applaud anybody who's able to make a go of it in this in this environment for news or for media of any kind. Um, it's not easy to do entrepreneurial stuff, uh, particularly. But, but again, uh, with regards to disclosure, is, is that something that you plan on doing? We're going to be doing a series on the Great Bear Rainforest coming up over the next year. And this will be the first series on the National Observer. And yes, we're fully disclosing. So what can people expect going forward from the National Observer? You talk about creating like an energy reporting desk, an environmental reporting desk in Canada, which is uh, sorely needed. Should I take from that that this is like one job that you're, you're assigning a reporter to that beat or, or is it more involved than that? Well, our first hire is Bruce Livesey, who's going to be uh, joining us from Toronto as our lead investigative reporter. Good hire. Yeah, that's a good hire. <laughs> I think so, too. Bruce will be doing at least one story a month, and um, his first story that we'll be launching with will be the story that Global didn't want you to hear. Oh, that's great. So that that Koch brothers story, I mean, not the actual documentary, uh, I guess, that Global owns the footage and, and all that, but but the, the story itself, the investigation uh, that will be. Yes, he's uh, he's rewrite. I mean, he's working on a new version of the story. That'll be the centerpiece of our launch. Like as I said earlier, I mean we, we, we cover this stuff by accident because we, we have an interest in anything that's being suppressed or you know conflict of interest stories and that led us to oil and so much of what we cover leads us to oil almost by accident. We didn't set out to cover this stuff and I actually I have to come clean like I approach this topic with a bias. Um, you know, having worked in, in, in newsrooms and, and been at story meetings, I glazed over whenever environmental stories came up and you know that's me. You know, as, as a journalist, as as a citizen, I I fully believe that climate change. Is, is happening, is man-made, is the problem of our era. But in terms of telling a good story, like, I've never found wonky stories about, you know, uh, pipeline deals or <laughs> cap and trade or even the science behind it. I accept the science. It's just true to me that this is happening. And, uh, you know, the stories always sort of uh, seem to lack personality. They're incredibly depressing. What are you going to do to engage people on these topics? I mean, how are you going to kind of present this editorially in a way that's going to grab Canadians? My editorial approach is that to tell that it's all about people and that the dramas are huge now in this because really when you have people pitted up against big industry you know when you have people finding out that a pipeline's coming through their backyard that they don't want when you have like the son of an oil executive testifying at a Canadian review panel you know giving a passionate testimony about uh his views that are in, in conflict with those of his fathers. Some of the stories are really epic. In terms of the Canadian environment, you know, Canada's environment is epic. And there are 
amazing stories to tell. So we totally approach all of our journalism with the question of, you know, where's the story? What's a good story? And I agree, you know, we're, we're not going to be publishing a lot of, you know, dry stories about facts and figures and graphs. And although we will have some of some really not dry <laughs> versions of that by our fantastic uh, carbon reporter, Barry Saxifrage. But, you know, it's all about people's stories, really. You mentioned all these names. If I were to walk into your office, would I see kind of like a traditional buzzing newsroom or, or it would be more like the kind of operation I've got going here where there's a couple of us, two or three, and then there's people spread out in various coffee shops and, and bedrooms. Well, for a long time, we worked around the dining room table in my apartment. But now we do have an office downtown in Vancouver in the Dominion building. And um, you will find some people there, but you won't find everybody there by any means. Uh, you won't find Barry Saxifrage there. <laughs> He'll be in his house, you know, spending hours at his computer making incredible graphics about carbon and, you know, what's going on with the environment, particularly with, with carbon. And it sounds dry, but in his hands, it's not. It's all about the writing. It's all about the storytelling. And, you know, we're going to deliver really good, compelling stories, as we've been doing on the Vancouver Observer, which is why we've been able to build a big audience. I have a bit of context for the media scene in, in Vancouver and, I guess, you know, a little bit in British Columbia from a um, conversation I had with David Beers of the TAI and, and looking at sort of the evaporation of mainstream news sources uh, in Vancouver and, you know, probably not unrelated. There are, there are new online sources like your own popping out and whenever you've got rival upstarts, you're going to have some drama. And when you're taking on uh, big interest, there's, there's going to be some some backlash. Uh, similarly, when you Google me or Canada Land, some of the first things that are going to pop up are going to be some critical takes that, that the media has had on us. And similarly, uh, when I Google you, uh, I, I get uh, an article from BC Business Magazine saying that you guys have clear political allegiance to Vancouver City Hall. I came across this other website, City Caucus, that had all kinds of unattributed criticism of you. We are definitely a progressive publication. There's no doubt about it. You know, we are not going to side with conservative points of view very rarely. Maybe occasionally we will. But um, it also comes from the fact that, um, you know, I, I lived on Cortez Island before I moved to Vancouver, and I personally knew the, mayor, the, the man that was to become the mayor of Vancouver, Gregor Robertson. And um, my brother and Gregor Robertson are best friends. So... I can't really do anything about that. You know, that is my part of my history. That's part of who I am. But it was blown way out of proportion. And it was, you know, an effort to undermine what we were doing at the Vancouver Observer. And a little bit sexist, too, I would say. You know, I was... <laughs> I just was often, ref really often referred to by these, by my critics as Joel Solomon's sister. Joel's my brother. And, um, you know, Joel and I, I don't know how you are with your siblings, but, you know, we don't, um, <laughs> we don't, we're not that involved in each other's lives. And we certainly are not sharing a brain. So we are very much independent and we do not 
have a special relationship at all at this point with Vision Vancouver, which was one of the criticisms. And we and, and one of the reasons it's going to be a real relief for me to be working on a national level is that I moved to Canada some years ago. I became a citizen in 2012. But this will be my first federal election that I get to vote in. I've never worked for a political party in Canada. I have no allegiances whatsoever. You know, so so that's very liberating for me because I have not enjoyed these criticisms. <laughs> so your, your brother's not also hanging out with Thomas Mulcair or, or anything like that? <laughs> I'm, I think that I can't speak. I, I'm not, I really don't know who he's hanging out with. But he probably likes Thomas Mulcair. He probably likes him. And, but I bet he likes Justin Trudeau, too. Uh-huh. And I like both of them. Okay. I like Elizabeth May. Uh, someone's missing from that list, but okay. <laughs> I haven't had a chance to like Stephen Harper. Um, you, you, you call yourself a 9-11 refugee. What does that mean? No, other people called me that. <laughs> Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Um, I did come here after 9-11. I did. I, I was living in New York City, you know, during the World Trade Center attacks. And I lived in Soho. I lived on West Broadway, about 15 blocks from the World Trade Center. And I was pregnant with my second child when it all came down. After the attacks, the air was extremely toxic. You know, it was very, very polluted. And so we just came. The idea was to really just get out of the pollution. And so we picked up and we moved to Canada for, you know, the term of my pregnancy. And we came here and we just fell in love with it and didn't really want to go back. Oh, it's interesting to hear somebody who, uh, you know, adopted Canada and and, and came to love it, but who, uh, you know, in short order is making efforts to reform it. (laughs) Well, you know... Like, I came to Canada very, very much um, with the idea of Canada as the wonderful society, wonderful democracy, health, you know, all the things that, that were kind of messed up in the U.S., like no health care, um, you know, n- not much of a social safety net for people. Uh, so I think as an outsider, I just see how much Canada has that's worth fighting for. Listen, Linda, congratulations on going national. I, I, I really feel like the more voices, the better. The more people actually putting resources into journalism and investigative work, the better. I'll certainly be paying attention. Thank you so much. Quick announcement. Canada Land is taking over the Bloor Hot Docs Theatre in Toronto on May 19th. This is a live podcast taping with big shot movie star Jay Baruchel. What is wrong with Canadian television? What is wrong with Canadian film? Nothing that Jay and I can't fix. Jay and Jesse solve everything. May 19th at the Bloor Hot Dogs Theatre. Tickets are on sale now online. You can find the link by Googling Canada Land and Hot Dogs together or by going to the Patreon site. I'll see you there. That is your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can always email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Brown, and the website is CanadaLandShow.com. The crowdfunding site is Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. I make this show with Katie Jensen, and the next episode of Canada Land Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. If you like this show, support it. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.